Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Two announcements. One is the ongoing announcement about the project of uh, fixing things up around here. We still don't know. There are still some things that are uh, haven't been decided yet, so just stay tuned. And then the other announcement has to do with the uh, reception after the Sunday morning service on July the 18th for uh, Colonel Phil Smith, who is uh, Ruth's brother and Betty's son. He's retiring from the uh, Marine Corps. And so we will be having a uh, reception for him immediately following the service uh, that particular day. So everybody's invited uh, invited to attend. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study the Word and ready to uh, focus on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us. We need to make sure that we are um, uh, in fellowship and ready to focus on the Word and concentrate So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can study your word freely in this nation, that we have the uh, freedoms that we have to freely proclaim your word, to proclaim the gospel, to teach your word, to teach the truth without any uh, form of government interference. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our leaders, for those in the military, for the uh, uh, leaders who are overseeing the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, that you would give them wisdom and that you would give the uh, those in charge the ability to think clearly and uh, objectively about the things that they can and can't do, and that you would give us a, a timely victory there over our enemies that our troops can return home. Father, we pray that you would help us this evening as we study your word, that we might be encouraged and strengthened, motivated, challenged by the study of your word this evening as we continue to work our way through Revelation and continue to uh, as we come to the conclusion of Revelation and review several of the key doctrines that are taught uh, within that book. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're in Revelation 21, 7, and 8, and we should have enough time unless the windows of heaven open out there. We should have enough time to get through these uh, these two verses. It's somewhat of a review, so I'm going to pull some things together. We've covered the key doctrines here related to inheritance uh, several times, inheritance and rewards uh, several times as we have gone through this particular uh, book study. Also, we've covered those in detail in the Hebrew study on, on Thursday night. But it's particularly important uh, as we come to the end section of the book of Revelation to review these things again as they are brought up. And as you'll notice, if you just take a brief uh, perusal of the last couple of two or three pages here of Revelation 21, that uh, with verse 8 we finish the opening paragraph of chapter 21, and then in verses 9, from verse 9 down to uh, the end of the chapter, the focus is on the New Jerusalem. And so that's not a lengthy study because... Most of what we know about the New Jerusalem is located here. Most of this is simply uh, a description of its size and its uh, various characteristics. And then we'll get into chapter 22, wrapping up a few things uh, by verse 11, and then really from verse 12 to the end, we get the summary challenge from the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. So we are very close to finishing our study of Revelation, and as we hit certain things, I want to take the opportunity to go back and review and pull things together for us so that uh, one last time in this study uh, we can can pull our thoughts together, synthesize all the material we've gone over. For those of you who have hung in through this study, it's been a long study, six years, and uh, 
We've covered a lot of details of prophecy. Actually, when I think about this, it goes back to about 1999 when I was up at um, uh, up in Connecticut and, and pastoring there, and I knew the importance of prophecy. Felt like it was necessary to go through the study of prophecy. Started with Daniel. From Daniel, I went through a brief series on uh, God's plan for the ages, dispensations. And then we got into Revelation in 2004, and that will conclude within the next couple of months. And that will probably be the last time for at least a decade before we deal with uh, prophetic issues again, because we've covered most of the key key areas there, and we'll be moving into some other uh, significant doctrines when we finish. Several people have asked what we're going to do when I finish, and I'm, we're going to start a study of Acts. Colossians and Romans. I don't know which one will follow Revelation, but we will. Uh, but within the next uh, period, from about the first of August until the middle of September, we will probably finish Hebrews, Revelation, and Second Kings. So we're going to go through a major transition uh, in terms of what we've been studying by the uh, end of the summer, the beginning of the fall. All right, well, when you look at these verses that we're going to come to tonight, verse 7 and verse 8 in Revelation 21, there is a apparent or surface problem when you get into these verses. And that is because it appears to present a view of salvation in the gospel that is based on morality, that's based on behavior, that's based on, on works. If you read these verses, which I'll do just to begin... Uh, we read in verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, or unfaithful, uh, abominable or detestable, uh, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is one of the primary passages that we have in the scripture. There's about a dozen or more that talk about the fact that, the, that God has stated in his word that there is a definite punishment for the wicked, for those who have not uh, accepted his plan of salvation. And we see that down through the ages, God has always had a plan of salvation from different things. Uh, this is the plan of salvation in terms of eternal salvation. There was a plan of salvation from the judgment of the worldwide flood at the time of Noah, and there was only one way to escape that. There was a plan of salvation during the time of the uh, Jewish exodus from their and their redemption from slavery in Egypt, and with the tenth plague, that was where God brought death upon the firstborn in every household. There was only one way to escape death, and that was to apply the blood of the sacrificed lamb to the doorposts. And if you didn't do that, then there was death. And there are other situations that have uh, occurred down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament period where God said, I'm going to bring judgment on the nation or judgment on an individual. There's one way to escape that. And if you don't do what I say to do, then you won't escape. And there will be judgment because God's righteousness has to be satisfied. And in his righteousness, he must bring judgment. But as a loving God, he always provides a way of escape a way of salvation and a way of deliverance. And that plan of salvation uh, is always based on grace. It's not based on what we do. There's always a free offer. For example, at the time of the uh, flood with Noah, the, Noah preached for 120 years. He proclaimed the fact that God was going to judge the earth through a worldwide flood, and anyone who didn't join him on the ark would perish. And no one took him up on that. They laughed, they scoffed, they scorned, they just didn't believe that uh, rain would come. They had never, according to what we know of that antediluvian period, they just didn't know what rain was. They had never experienced that. It was a different environment based on what we have in the first uh, six or five or six chapters in Genesis. But there was there was judgment. 
Then at the time of the Exodus, of course, there's also uh, God's gracious provision of a way of deliverance that is not based upon human human works or human merit. It was based upon God, uh, God's grace. And so grace is also manifest in the gospel that Scripture teaches that we're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ alone because he paid the penalty for sin. There's nothing that we can do. There's no works. There's no merit on our part. There's no, uh, we don't have to act a certain way, behave a certain way, change our lives in order to become acceptable to God because he knows that at the very core of the human soul, we cannot solve that problem at all. We, we can't even um, whitewash it to any degree. It is a core problem of sin and until that is dealt with and only God can deal with it there can be no solution so man just cannot do it so grace salvation has always been based on grace now let me go through a few passages to emphasize this we see it in both the old and the new testament for example Isaiah 55 1 speaking again of the kingdom period which relates to these passages in Revelation 21 6 through 8 Isaiah said ho Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The waters frequently represent, they're literal waters, but they represent salvation. It is life that comes through drinking water. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Well, you can't buy if you don't have money. See, it is given freely. The next verse, yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price without cost so that God gives freely the issue is do you want to accept the free gift from God this is reiterated when we come to the end of the Bible the end of the New Testament in Revelation 21 God said to John when it's written he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega we studied this last time that this relates to the voice of God the Father is the one who sits upon uh, the throne. And we studied this under the uh, Greek word that was used and coined by the uh, early church fathers, perichoresis, indicating the, that the, the interpenetration of the members of the Trinity. Uh, he has done, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Salvation is free. God, every time you see this word give, where God is the subject, it, give is the verb for grace. And it is, God gives freely. We just simply accept it. The verb to accept a gift from God is used as a parallel to faith many times in the, in the scripture. So we just accept it. It is a free gift. We do nothing to earn it. Or deserve it. In Revelation 22:17, the same imagery is used. And the Spirit says, and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. That is the one who wants that spiritual life, that relationship with the Father. Whoever desires, let him take of the life, water of life freely. No conditions attached. It is a free gift. It's not a gift if you have to do something in order to uh, possess it. And the reason it is given freely is because man has an inherent problem, and that inherent problem is spelled out in both Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, we have passages such as Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6. And usually we quote verse 6, but tonight I wanted to put that up there in the context with the verse 5 because it gives, her, gives it, the context gives it a richer sense. Isaiah says, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Who, he's speak, speaking to God is the you. Uh, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, that is, in the ways of sin, and we need to be saved. That is talking about not just a physical deliverance, but a soteriological Deliverance, the need for man, the unrighteous, to become righteous in the sight of God. And that can only be done if God does it because there's an inherent problem, which is explained in verse 6. But we are all, no one escapes 
Isaiah has a universal view of human sinfulness. All are unclean. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. All the good things we do, all of the moral things we do, all the things that we do and that people do, thinking that they're doing what God wants them to do. Uh, you can go to church, pray, you can be involved in many different good deeds, many things that are helpful and wonderful activities, but unless it's empowered by God and done from a changed heart, then it has no eternal value. We're all like an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What Isaiah is saying is not that our unrighteousness are like filthy rags, but our righteousness, the best that we have to do, are like filthy rags. And the term there for filthy rags uh, speaks of the most unclean uh, filth that could be imagined in at that particular time. Uh, today we might liken it to the uh, medical biological waste that is dumped out of a surgery and left to rot out in the garbage for a few days. That would be, you know, analogous to what God, how God describes the very best that you've done, the things that you're most proud of that you did in your own effort, thinking that somehow that impressed God. See, this is a problem that man, that man has always had, is rather than accepting God's gift of salvation to solve the problem of sin, man tries to cover it up himself. It's the first thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the scripture says that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And it's not just a physical nakedness. It is a soul nakedness. They have been exposed before God now as sinful creatures. And then they hear the voice of God walking in the garden. And what do they do? They run and hide because they know that they have violated his, his commandment. And they try to cover up their nakedness by sewing together fig leaves. See, that's man by man's effort trying to solve the problem of sin. And when that chapter ends, what does God do? God gives them a permanent solution, and he takes animal skins. He has to teach them about sacrifice. This is when sacrifice first enters into human history, the killing of the innocent animal, innocent sacrificial animal, in order to... uh, cover the problem of sin. And so the animal was killed and his hide was then treated and clothes were made in order to temporarily cover that problem of sin, all of which foreshadowed the fact that a death would have to take place in order to pay the penalty for man. And that was fulfilled with Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17:9 said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked Who can know it? So the Old Testament makes it clear man has a problem, and he can't solve it on his own. There's no amount of work or effort that can solve the problem. It has to be accepted freely from God. Titus, in the New Testament, Paul writes, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God does the work, man accepts it. It's not by any work that we do because our works of righteousness are what? Like filthy rags, Isaiah said. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's not of works. You just freely accept it. Well, does that mean that you can just, uh, that, that works are not important? And that obedience to God is irrelevant. It is for salvation. But it is the purpose of salvation for the very next verse says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's what occurs when you trust in Christ and accept that free gift of salvation. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not because of good works, but for good works. The good works come Uh, after salvation, the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So what we have is a problem because these verses all talk talk about salvation being a free gift of grace. You freely come, you freely receive. It doesn't require works. But then there's these other passages in the Scripture that seem to indicate that if you are engaged in certain sins, then you're not going to get to heaven, or at least that's how it appears to read. And we come to two of those verses uh, this evening. We have to read them in context, and which is very important. Verse 6 we read, And he said to me, that is the Father saying to John, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water freely to him who thirsts. The emphasis here is it's free. You don't do anything to earn it. And then we go to verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You hear the rumbling. See, make sure we don't get drowned here. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, etc., etc., their part is in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, at first glance, it seems like, well, what that means is that if you're cowardly, if you're unfaithful, or you're an unbeliever, if you're abominable, sometimes it's translated detestable, if you're a murderer, you're sexually immoral, a sorcerer, uh, the word there is pharmakeia, so if you are a, uh, and that was the use of various uh, hallucinogenic drugs in order to try to uh, produce some sort of religious encounter with God. Uh, it's not just the use of hallucinogenic drugs, and it's not just some form of mysticism. It was a combination of the two. Um, idolaters and all liars shall have their part. It sounds like that's destiny. It's not, but it sounds that way. And the lake which burns with fire. It sounds like if you do any of these things, you're going to end up in the lake of fire. Now, in order to understand this, we have to realize that there's four key words here, four key phrases that have to be understood in the context not only of Revelation, but in the context of the New Testament and the teaching of the whole Bible. Because what, what this verse is, is teaching is not a salvation by works. That would contradict so many things, both in Old and New Testament. It's talking, though, not about salvation. It's talking about inheritance. Now, inheritance has to do with what a child in a family inherits from the parents. We'll see the key word inherit has to do with with possession. But it has to do with a family, the disposition of property from one generation to another within a family. Now, in order to be in the family, you have to be saved. So it's, it can't, inheritance can never have as its focus salvation, which is getting into the family. John in his gospel said, As many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. You enter into the family of God by putting your trust in his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. So this if you understand this, he's talking about inheritance here, not salvation. Verse 7 establishes that clearly. The one who overcomes shall inherit all things. Verse 8 cannot be taken out of that context. It's talking about inheritance in relationship to overcoming. So there's four key phrases that have to be understood. The first is, what does it mean to overcome? He who overcomes. Second, we have to understand the phrase, uh, shall inherit all things. Third, we have to understand this word part, which is a poor translation, because we think of part as having a role in something. That's not what it means at all. The word part, as we'll see, has to do with receiving a share. That's the key word. Uh, Meros is often translated as share, it is a technical word that was used in legal documents at the time to indicate the share or portion that was designated to the heir in terms of his inheritance. And so uh, it's not talking about the person, it's talking about his share. It's not talking about the individual, it's talking about the portion that he would inherit. 
So to to bring it home, it's not talking about if you're in a family and your father dies and leaves you a million dollars and says that, uh, you know, you receive that on the condition that you've demonstrated a certain level of responsibility. If you don't, then that you don't get the money and it goes to some charity. Then that's the idea here. It's not that you go to the charity. It's that the share goes to the charity. So in this case, the share is not going to go to the charity. It's going to go to the, it's going to just be burned up in the lake of fire. How's it looking out there, Alan? Okay. All right. Now, <clears throat> first thing I want to talk about is death. I have to understand that in the Bible there are seven different kinds of death. We've covered these before, so I'll hit them rather quickly. The first is spiritual death. Spiritual death describes the separation that occurs between God and a human being because of sin. Because of sin, there is a uh, there is a, a separation that occurs in the human being because there's a part of his nature that that Adam lost and that every other human being is born without that prevents us from having that intimate relationship with God. So we refer to that as spiritual death. Second, there's physical death, which is also separation. It is separation of the immaterial part of man from the material part of man. It is a separation of his soul from his body at the time uh, of physical death. There is sexual death. This occurs uh, as referenced in uh, Romans 4, 16 to 21, and Hebrews 11, 11 and 12 in reference to Abraham, who was too old to have children and unable to... Uh, unable to procreate, and as was Sarah. Fourth, we have production death. This is uh, the man who has faith but no works. He can't. He's not. He, he's a Christian. He's saved, but he isn't producing anything uh, that has eternal value. That's James two sixteen. Uh, similar to that concept is a concept of just carnal death mentioned in passages like Romans eight six and thirteen. Ephesians 5.14, 1 Timothy 5.6, James 1.15, Revelation 3.1, Luke 15.24 and 32. I'll read those again for those who just listen. Romans 8.6 and 13, Ephesians 5.14, 1 Timothy 5.6, James 1.15, Revelation uh, 3.1, Luke 15.24, and Luke 15.32. Carnal death describes the, the Christian who is living on the basis of sin, the sin nature, which is often referred to as the flesh in the scripture. Flesh is, is where we get our word, uh, the Latin word uh, for uh, carnal has to do with the flesh. So that has become a technical word used in theology to describe the believer who's not walking by the spirit, but walking by the, the flesh or the sin nature. Then there's per, positional death. Romans 6, uh, positional death. This is the uh, believer who is identified at the point of salvation, is identified with Christ in his death on the cross, and that identification is related to his legal justification. And then the seventh kind of death mentioned in the Bible is the second death for all, uh, all those who have rejected God's plan of salvation. Now, just a couple of points on the concept of second death as it's laid out in the Scripture. First of all, the term uh, second death is used four times in the New Testament, including our passage. All four of these passages are found in the book of Revelation. The first of these is found in Revelation 2.11. Now, in case you have forgotten, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters or postcards, evaluation reports, actually, that the Lord Jesus Christ has written or posted to each of seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And they list various things that those churches are doing well, and in some cases things they're not doing well. In two of the churches, there was nothing negative mentioned. In two of the other churches, there's nothing positive mentioned. At the end of each of those, there is a challenge that the one who truly 
And to paraphrase it, the person who really wants to listen to what I have to say, the person who is truly humble and will respond to this kind of an evaluation, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to just the one church that's being addressed, but to the churches. The fact that you have a plural church there indicates that each of these evaluation reports was really designed to have application to any church, every church, anywhere through any uh, any century. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, notice we have this same terminology that we have in Revelation 21, uh, 21, 7, that the one who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, this is being addressed to Christians, being addressed to believers. The promise of the gospel is that if you trust in Christ, you have eternal life. You can't lose it. You have it. It can't be lost. And that means you can't you won't go to the lake of fire. You won't be condemned. John 3.18, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. That condemnation means that the destiny there is the second death, the lake of fire. Here we read, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So how in the world can a believer be hurt by the second death? Well, what we see from Revelation 21, uh, 7 and 8, especially verse 8, is that the way you're hurt is not because that's you end up going to the lake of fire, but if you are a, a failure in that spiritual life, then you will uh, end up losing potential rewards that are not given to you but are then destroyed in the, in the lake of fire. Revelation 20. Verse 14 is a, another passage that mentions the second death and the death. Um, uh, this, define, this is really the key verse for defining the second death. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This comes at the uh, end of the great white throne judgment, the final judgment uh, that comes in history. This is referenced in Daniel chapter uh, 13 or 12, verse 1, that there would be a final judgment. Uh, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So the uh, second death is a, a eternal ongoing death in the lake of fire. Now, two key passages are re- re- we must look at in order to understand this whole doctrine. The first is found in Revelation 20, verse 6. In Revelation 20, verse 6, as we studied, uh, we read, Blessed is and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. There's that word part again, same word we find in our verse in, in Revelation 21, 8. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. See, they're not going to, there, there's no risk of losing your salvation. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, the word there translated part is that Greek word meros I mentioned a minute ago, which is a technical term for the share or portion, designated portion of an inheritance. So here we have a reference that the one who has a part or an inheritance in the first resurrection, it's not talking about everyone in the first resurrection. It's talking about the ones who receive an inheritance in the first resurrection, these are the believers who have something rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. Blessed and holy is he who has a share in the first resurrection over such, that is, those who have had a reward. The second death has no power. But those who don't have a reward, what happens? Theirs gets, they will be harmed in the sense that they will lose their rewards uh, in the lake of fire. They, that is, those who have an inheritance in the first resurrection, shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, this is not saying that if you don't have rewards of the judgment seat of Christ, that you're not going to be in the kingdom. Now, there are people who have taught that. There are some within the free grace camp who teach that, and that is not what this is saying. Uh, There are some who want to somehow conjure up a Roman Catholic-type purgatory for believers who are failures at the judgment seat of Christ, who lose all of their rewards, as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that, ah, you really blew it, 
So you're not going to even be on the earth. You're going to go off into this place of darkness and gnashing of teeth, and um, and you're going to suffer for uh, uh, the thousand years, and then you'll get to come into heaven. And that's just a, another way in which works and self-righteousness enters into and, and tries to destroy the free grace gospel. The second verse that is important to interpret all these things is the verse that we're looking at in Revelation 21.8, which talks about, uh, again, uses that term, that those in this list, plus many others, as we'll see, there's about 20 or more different sins that are listed in similar passages. And basically it covers anything that might be thought of as a sin, because when Paul finishes, he says, and things like this in Galatians 5. So it just, it's, it's an open-ended list. It's not meant to be a definitive list. Uh, those who, uh, continue to, it's not talking about those who continue in sin. It's talking about those who continue to sin without ever ha- having any cleansing of sin in their life, uh, in terms of confession of sin. We are reminded that in Revelation 21, verse 4, God said he would wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, skipping ahead, just pick up the context again. Remember, the context here is talking about what God freely gives in verse 6. And what he freely gives is one thing. Inheritance is something else. You earn, we'll see in Colossians 3, you earn a reward, but you are given a gift. And there's a difference. You earn a reward. You do something to get a reward. You don't do anything in order to get a gift. So inheritance is related to uh, obedience. Another key place where this word is used is in John 13, verse 8. Now, let's, let me go back and look at the context, or just turn with me there, uh, John 13. Did David cover this when he was dealing with uh, confession one of those times when I was gone? No? I think he, oh, he did? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought he did. I thought he was going to. I didn't know if he did it the first time or if he got rained out. This, hmm? Okay. Quick review. It's the, it's the Passover meal the night before Jesus goes to the cross. The disciples come to the Passover meal, and as they come in, Jesus takes the role of a servant, removes his outer robe, uh, wraps a towel, basically a towel around his waist, takes a basin of water, and begins to wash their feet. As he comes to Peter, Peter looks at him, and out of his arrogance, Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Who are you to wash my feet? I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Verse 7, Jesus said, what I am doing you don't understand now, but you will know after this. Now, what Jesus is pointing out is there is a purpose. There is, it's a teaching moment. Jesus is going to do something physical in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. And he said, you don't understand why I'm doing this right now because we haven't had the teaching point yet. First, I'm giving you the physical action, and I'm going to do the cleansing, and then we're going to talk about it. So Jesus said, you're not going to understand this now, but I need to do this. So Peter then doesn't get the point, and he just dogmatically says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Verse 8, and Jesus said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, there's that word again that we see in Revelation 21, 8. It's the word meros. Now, Jesus isn't saying, if you don't let me wash your feet, I'm not going to let somebody with dirty, stinky feet be part of my team. Okay? And, and, and that you'll be kicked out of being a disciple. What he is saying is something much more profound. He is talking about an inheritance. He uses this word in a, in the same sense. He says, if you don't let me cleanse you, your feet, not the whole person, which would be related to salvation, 
but your feet, which is related to ongoing cleansing and confession. Jesus says, if you don't let me cleanse you, let me just paraphrase this. Jesus says, if you don't let me cleanse you from sin on an ongoing way, then you're not going to have an inheritance with me. So people then, let's plug this together. You sit over here and you look at these passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, uh, Galatians uh, 5, 16, uh, 16 to uh, 20, where you have the, as well as a passage we have in Revelation 21, 8, where we have this list of sins. People look at this and say, oh, gosh, if I commit these sins, then there's no inheritance. That's not, let's, let's put all the scripture together. What we're seeing is we all commit a lot of those sins. You, there are some on there you may never commit. There are some on there you may consistently commit. There are some others that didn't, aren't necessarily on the list and you have gotten a PhD in those sins, but they're still part of the package. Once we sin, we're out of fellowship. There has to be a cleansing. It's based on the fact that Jesus has already paid for those sins on the cross. And there has to be a cleansing. That cleansing comes through confession. It's depicted in the Old Testament when the priest would come uh, into the temple, uh, the tabernacle of the temple. He'd wash his hands, wash his feet at the labor. But when the priest was initially cleansed, when he's anointed, when he is uh, established in the role at his inauguration, he takes a full bath. He is washed clean from head to toe. That depicts the believer's salvation. At the instant that we trust Christ as Savior, we're washed from head to toe. We're justified. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a word, rachatz, in the Hebrew for uh, uh, washing that covered both partial and total washing. But when the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they distinguished between full washing and partial washing. And the full washing was, the word was luo, L-O-U-O, L-O-U, yeah, L-U-O-U-O, L-U-O-U-O. And that word meaning to wash was a full body wash. And that's the word that's used to describe the priest when he was first anointed. After that, he had to just wash his hands and feet, and the word for a partial washing, washing your hands, washing your feet, or if you just wash your hair, wash your face, or whatever, that was nipto. Now, you have to understand that to really catch what Jesus says here to Peter. In verse 8, he goes. Peter responds to this after Jesus says, you won't have any inheritance with me. Peter then just goes all the way to the other extreme, and he says... Um, in verse 9, he says, Lord, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head. In other words, give me a bath, because he uses the word luo there. Uh, or, um, excuse me, he uses, he's indicating a full bath. And then Jesus responds to him in verse 10 and says, He who is bathed, that is completely washed, indicating, Peter, you've already taken a full bath. You don't need to get back in the shower or the bathtub again. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean. Notice that he says that to and he uses a second person plural pronoun there. Y'all are clean. He's addressing all the disciples. He says, y'all are clean, but not all of you, indicating that there was one there that had not been completely cleansed yet. There was one there that wasn't saved. That was Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, who would be, betray him. So there's the indication there that all the disciples are saved except one, which is Judas Iscariot. But the contrast is being uh, is, is being developed by the Lord on uh, full bath versus partial washing. He who is bathed luo needs only to wash his feet, and that's nipto. And then verse 11 reiterates the point, so we get it, that Jesus knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean, making sure you get the point that he's talking about Judas, the betrayer. Then in verse 12 he says, so when he had washed their feet, nipto, the partial washing, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, nipto, indicating 
forgiveness of sin, ongoing sin in the life, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's forgiving one another. That's part of what he's going to teach at the end of the chapter, which is the new commandment that he gives to them, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is how all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is related to forgiving one another. So the point is that what we see in Revelation 21, 7 and 8 is that we're all going to commit a lot of sins. Some people are going to commit a lot, a lot of sins. But it's not, the sin doesn't cancel salvation. It doesn't cancel grace. But it does cancel your ongoing spiritual growth and spiritual life and spiritual production. And the only way to recover forward momentum is to confess your sins and be cleansed. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is uh, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the first verse my mother had me memorize when I was barely able to speak. She knew it would come in handy. If we confess our sins, God does what? He cleanses us. That indicates restoration of fellowship. That's the partial washing that Jesus illustrated with Peter. It's tantamount to the washing of the hands and the feet of the high priest as he'd come in to serve God so that his service before God would then have value in the spiritual life and the ritual life of the service in the temple or the tabernacle. And so we see the same thing here. You don't become a mature believer and have production in your life for inheritance and rewards if you never confess your sins and you're never cleansed because everything that you do is just the production of the sin nature and it has no value because you're doing it in in your own energy or power rather than God's. This is why uh, the... In Revelation 2.11, Jesus said, He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, this also relates to another verse, uh, Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17 has a punctuation problem, but it talks about the fact that there's two kinds of believers. There are those who are successful or victorious and those who aren't, those who lose rewards. And here in Romans 8.17, Paul writes, And if children, then heirs. So you can't talk about inheritance without realizing it's a family issue. Salvation is about getting in the family. Inheritance is about what you receive within the family. Two different issues. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, if you you look at the screen, you see that I've highlighted the phrase heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There's no comma between those two phrases, and they are, by punctuation, made to seem as if they are synonymous, one and the same thing, which is how a lot of people want to take that just at first glance. And then the next phrase, if indeed we suffer with him, is is made to look like this is a condition that you only become an heir and a joint heir, or i.e. saved, if you suffer with him. But you have to remember that in the original Greek, there's no punctuation, no commas, no periods, no quotation marks, no colons, no semicolons, m dashes, n dashes, or anything like that. In fact, you don't even have spaces between the words. They just, the words, the letters just all run together when they got to the end of the line on the uh, piece of papyrus or on the scroll. They just started on the next line. They didn't hyphenate it at syllable breaks. They just hyphenated when they ran out of space. And they didn't hyphenate. They just went to the next line and just kept writing. Now, I always love this example. Here we have a phrase that is unpunctuated. Woman without her man is Nothing. Now, some, a lot of you have seen this before. Some of you haven't. How would you punctuate that? Well, studies have shown that women tend to punctuate it this way. They put the comma after woman and after her, which sets without her as a uh, as an appositional phrase, so that um, 
what the the uh, main thing that this is saying is that without woman, man is nothing. Men, however, have a tendency to only put one comma in there, and that comes after man. And then it has the totally opposite view: woman with woman without her man is nothing. There it says, you know, the woman is nothing without her man. So a comma can completely change the meaning of a sentence. It can turn it from just 180 degrees opposite its intended meaning. Now, remember, there's no meaning in the Greek, and so that's got to be determined by either grammatical structure or syntax or theology or both. Now, if we repunctuate this, uh, and if children, then heirs of God, comma, Notice, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but I put a yellow comma there after God. Heirs of God, that's one kind of heir. That's true for every single believer is an heir of God. Heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, because being a joint heir with Christ is conditioned on suffering with him. That comes with spiritual growth. Salvation enters you into the family of God and you become an heir of God. But to be a joint heir with Christ, to rule and reign with him, Revelation 20, verse 6, talking about those who uh, uh, have a part, those who have an inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ will reign with Christ as priests and kings. That's a joint heir with Christ. That comes as a result of spiritual growth. So this is the this is a challenge now. Skipping ahead a couple of uh, verses, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. We've, uh, I've talked about this before. Again, I'm just going to hit a couple of high points. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, turn with me there so I can reference a couple of verses. Paul is addressing another problem that's cropped up in the church of Corinth. Now, the church of Corinth was made up with a, a whole bunch of people who were not living any kind of Christian life. I mean, that's why he's writing the letter. It's that he just reams them out about one behavioral issue after another because they're living just like they did before they were saved. Now, you have to understand something about Corinth. I would say Corinth was sort of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, but that would be an insult to Las Vegas or because it was a port town, it had been destroyed by the Romans much earlier in the middle of the first or second century B.C., and they rebuilt it in uh, 64 B.C. as a Roman colony, and they started off by repopulating it with a bunch of retired uh, soldiers, and then it was a port city right on the Isthmus of Corinth, and it attracted a lot of... Uh, uh, people from all over the Mediterranean who were involved in trade and shipping and a lot of sailors. I mean, it was a typical port town that had all of the uh, attractions to sailors that, had, uh, that, that they could ever want. So they were a town that, that majored in lasciviousness. So they're, 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 he's not addressing them because they're such great and wonderful people. He's addressing them because they are just they, they are they are up to their armpits and and and, uh, and moral and ethical squalor. So he says he, he's addressing one of the problems that they've got is that they are uh, taking take whenever somebody else in the church offends them, they're hauling them off to court with some kind of lawsuit. And at the conclusion of his rebuke, Paul says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, inheriting the kingdom of God is receiving the meros, the part, the portion, the share. And saying, if you engage in all of these sins all the time without cleansing, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Two questions have to be answered. Who are the unrighteous? The Greek word is adikia. Adikeo is the verb. Adikos is the 
uh, adikoi or adikas is the uh, is the singular. Adikas is a singular. Adikoi is the plural. Second, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of uh, God? Now, according now dealing with the first one, if you go back and look at the first verse, Paul writes, "Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints." Notice there's a contrast between the unrighteous and the saints. The saints are believers, Christians. The unrighteous, therefore, are not Christians. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, see, that means that unrighteous means not Christian. So when you read in verse uh, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? It's talking about unbelievers. But if inheritance is a family matter, then why would an unbeliever care? What kind of... You know, an unbeliever knows he's not going to inherit anything. So why is it a matter of, uh, of significance to him if the unbeliever is told that if he doesn't uh, change his behavior, he won't inherit the kingdom? He knows he's not going to have any inheritance. So um, actually the word that we'll, we'll see, uh, adikos, means unrighteous or those who are disobedient. And there is a closer use of that word in verse 8. Verse 8 says, you yourselves do wrong. That's the verb, adikao. You yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the wrongdoers, that's, see, that's another example of where you have the same word used in two different two verses close to each other, and in one verse it's translated one way, the next verse it's translated another way, and you miss the whole point. Paul is being very careful in how he uses this word. You're a wrongdoer. Don't you know that wrongdoers don't inherit? Now, when he says you are wrongdoers, it's clear he's addressing believers. So he must be addressing believers in verse 10, I mean verse 9. Do you not know that the wrongdoer won't inherit the kingdom of God. Quit being a wrongdoer. Now, the second question deals with the inheritance of the kingdom, and the problem most people have is they want inherit the kingdom to mean in entering the kingdom, and inheriting doesn't mean to enter. Inheriting has to do with ownership or possession. It means to have a share in the privileges and the possessions of the kingdom. This word is used in six passages in the New Testament, Matthew 25, 34. Our passage here, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, again in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Galatians 5, 21, again with following a list of sins, that if you do these sins, you won't inherit the kingdom, and Ephesians 5, 5, which also has a list of sins. If you do those things, you won't inherit the kingdom. Now, is, is Paul saying that if you do these things, you won't uh, be saved? No, he's saying you'll be saved, but you're not going to have a ownership, privilege, position to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. And then in verse 11, he's going to say, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, the you there, as we'll see in a minute, is all the same. It's all a second personal plural. Such were some of you all. But you all were washed, you all were sanctified, you all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So here's our map of Corinth right there on the isthmus here, which isn't very, very, it looks wider on this map than it is in reality. It's, uh, they cut a canal right across here so that ships could move from one side to the other, uh, from the Saronic Gulf on the right to the Gulf of Corinth on the left. Uh, and so this was a very popular trade area that you can see it here and you can look across the, uh, Gulf of Corinth to the area around Delphi and the far, on the far horizon. Now, there were all kinds of problems with the, I think I lost something here. Lost one point. The problem with the Corinthians is that they were just enmeshed in sin. Just going going through the list of the different sins that were characteristic there, they were... um, 
they were divisive and fractious. That's the first point, 1 Corinthians 1.10. They're divisive and fractious. Second, they were, Paul accused them of being enthralled by Greek pagan philosophies in 1 Corinthians 1.25. Then he said they were carnal. They were filled with jealousy and strife for one another in 1 Corinthians 3.1-3. They viewed themselves, they were self-absorbed, self-important in 4.8. They were boasting in 129.3.18-4.7. He calls them arrogant in 3.6.4.7 and 4.18. They're licentious and morally perver- permissive in chapter 5. They're sexually immoral in chapter 7. They're gluttonous drunkards in chapter 11. And they're self-absorbed and pagan in their view of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. Lovely people. He's not addressing them. When he says, and such were some of you, he's saying some of you used to be a bunch of drunks ne'er-do-wells. Because only some of you figured out that after you get saved, you need to start living your spiritual life. The rest of you, most of you, are still living like you did before you were saved. But some of you got the point. But all of you were washed, were justified, were sanctified. But only some of you aren't growing or going forward. So these are the... uh, these are the key key ideas here. The word adikos has to do not with unrighteous or unsaved. Context tells you, and context tells us here that he's talking about the uh, believer who is doing wrong rather than the unsaved. And kleronomos has to do with family issues, so this isn't how to get in the family. I want to skip over a couple of slides here because we're running out of time. Let me get to have a nice list here. Okay, here's our list. Look at that. If you take 1 Corinthians 6, you take Galatians 5, 16 to 21, you take Ephesians 5, 5, you take Revelation 21, 7, and 8, and you put the list together, if you're cowardly, unbelieving, if you're an unclean person, that's not talking about the fact that you don't take a bath, that's being spiritually unclean, uh, lewd, uh, involved in uh, pharmacaea, sorcery, uh, if you're hateful in your soul, mental attitude, sins of hatred, bitterness, uh, contentious, jealous, uh, if you lose your temper, you have outbursts of wrath, your selfish ambition, if you sow dissension, create discord, if you're involved in heresy, envy, murder, revelry, uh, fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuals, sodomites, uh, thieves, covetous, drunks, revilers, extortioners, detestable, sorcerers, or liars. If you do any of those and things like that, then you don't inherit the kingdom. Now, if inheriting the kingdom means you don't get saved, then basically, why do we have uh, prison missions? Why do we send people to, prison, to prisons to try to get them saved? Why, why are you here? You know, we all do these things. If, if doing these things means you can't get saved, then we're all lost. This doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has to do with post-salvation spiritual growth and rewards. Colossians 3.24 states, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You work for a reward. Salvation's a free gift. Again, Colossians 3.25 says, He who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There is no partiality with God. The solution is to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But here are the works of the flesh. Again, you have adultery, fornication, uncleanness, etc., etc. When he finishes the list, he says those who do things like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's an open-ended list. So that brings us back to our verse. What the verse is saying in Revelation 21.7 and 8 is simply this. The overcomer, the believer who moves forward in his spiritual life with obedience, confession of sin. It's not talking, even talking about works here. It's not saying that you cleaned up your life and you quit doing these things. It's saying uh, because the cleansing comes from confession, uh, that the overcomer is the one who uh, overcomes the world. It not, it's not talking about salvation. And he will receive an inheritance, but the one who doesn't, that's the warning. 
The one who doesn't, the one who gets saved and just goes on and lives his life as if nothing happened, um, he's going to lose all of his rewards, and they go into the lake of fire. And as I say, they just get sort of flushed down uh, the cosmic commode, and they get burned up into eternity, and they get lost. And you just have all of these things that you could have had, uh, rewards that would have been distributed, and they are lost. And so that brings us in Revelation 21.8 to a closure of this summary section in verses 1 through 8. And then next time we'll come back and look at the new Jerusalem and the remainder of the chapter, which focuses on on the eternal uh, abode and eternal relationship with God. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to pull these things together and see the, uh, the way Scripture teaches these things consistently and to be encouraged that uh, the whole spiritual life is on the basis of grace, on the basis of what you've provided, not on the basis of what we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.